This is Happiness Solved with America's Happiness Coach, Sandy Scarlatta. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. I'm so happy you're here. I'm Sandy Scarlatta. I was born in Virginia Beach and raised in the Baltimore, Annapolis area and had very humble and tragic beginnings. And as a result, my life was a hot mess. Thankfully, 33 years ago, I got my act together. And since that time, I have dedicated my life to serving others and raising awareness that no matter what you've been through, you can choose happiness and live the life of your dreams. Happiness Solved is dedicated to giving you content that is empowering, motivational, inspirational, and of course, a dose of happiness. It's my way to give back to the world and share other people's stories. This thing called life can be challenging, and my guests share their amazing stories, wisdom, and life lessons that demonstrate anyone can choose happiness. You see, happiness is a choice, and the choice is yours. Today's episode is amazing, and I am so grateful for you. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to leave a review and follow me on social media at Coach Sandy Scarlatta. Enjoy the show. Martin Salama, it is such an honor and privilege to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. <laughs> well, Sandy, it's an, really an honor for me to be here with you. I, I loved being with you a few weeks ago on my summit and hearing yes. your story and how much we have so much in common with our stories and where we've taken ourselves. Yes, I know. So you are known as the architect of the warrior's life code, L-I-F-E code. And you help people frustrated in their life quickly shift their mindset to uncover their greatness so they can live their true potential and enjoy life. So I'm going to let you tell your story to the audience, but that's just a snippet of who you are. Right. And, but first, we all have a story and my podcast is all about sharing people's stories so other people can learn and grow from them themselves. So yeah. tell us about your story. How did you get to where you are today? Okay, should we keep them in, in, in suspense as to what life stands for or did I tell them right away? <laughs> That's up to you. It's your right, well, story. Let's, let's <laughs> so life for me stands for live incredibly full every day. Okay, and it's actually, you know, over the last few weeks, I read something, a, re a recent article and it even crystallized what I do even more. Because it's not only living a happy life, it's living a meaningful life. Yeah. You could be happy without meaning, and you could have a meaningful life and not be happy. That's and right. And incredibly full takes both of that into account. All right. So let me tell you a little bit of my story. Um, it starts when I was a child, really when I was 10 years old, uh, 50 years right around now, this month of March. Not sure when this is going to air, but we're, we're taping it in March. But in March of 1973, my life changed forever that month. Uh, and you see this little this little boy right here? Yeah. This picture I just put up recently. We were cleaning out my mom's house. She moved into my sister's house. And I took a couple of pictures. And this was one of the ones I took. So this picture is of my five-year-old brother, Michael. Mm. Okay. And in that month of March of 1973, he met with a tragedy. Uh, he was getting off the school bus, dropped something in front of the school bus, and the bus driver didn't see him and drove. And unfortunately, four days later, he died from his injuries. 
So uh, you could, I, I, you're shaking your head because I know you and I have similar stories about siblings. Yeah. And you're feeling the same emotions well up in you as I do every time I tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 50 years ago and I still feel like I can imagine the day of me walking down the, the block and seeing the school bus with one of my four older sisters and wondering what's going on in front of our house and seeing my mother run out of the house pick Michael up with Michael in her arms. Uh, we don't know how he got into the house. We don't know any of that, but she was running out of the house, carrying Michael in her arms, running to the hospital and jumped in the car and ran to the hospital. You know, that memory is ingrained in me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was a tragic day, not only for my family. I come from a small Jewish community in Brooklyn. It affected our community and, uh, and really it affected so many people in so many different ways. Uh, on, on a positive side for a moment, before I go into what, how it affected me, it affected my mother for a few months. She was inconsolable. And someone came to her and said, you know, there are a couple of other women who have lost children. Why don't we get you all together? And you could start a group of understanding what you're going through together. She developed that group for the next 40 years. Wow. And whenever somebody would pass away, a, boy, a young child or somebody who had parents, during the week of Shiva, which we do in the Jewish community, and the people go to visit and make condolences, my mother would go there during the week and say to them, I know how you feel. We have a group of women who understand what you're going through. You're not alone. And over the years, women have come to me and tell, told me, your mother has saved my life. At my lowest point, she was there for me. So just for a moment, I, I feel like I have to honor her in this moment. Of course. Yeah. Uh, my father has done some wonderful things. My sisters have. I was the founder of a synagogue that my father gave us money to a year after we started and said, if you name it after your brother, I'll give you money towards building it. $50,000. This was 1993. Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's called Sharei Tefila B'nai Moshe, which is the gates of prayer for the children of Moses. And his Hebrew name was Moshe Moses. Oh, so wow. he's, he'll, his legacy will carry on forever. And wow. uh, recently I talked about how I could have gone down that rabbit hole and many times I did of what if, what would his life have been? What would my life have been? But it doesn't serve me. And uh, so I move forward now. So on that day, I told myself a story when my brother died. I lost my brother. I was, I'm the only boy left. It's my job to carry on the legacy, carry on the name and make good for my parents. And that day, I said, I'm going to make sure my parents are always happy. I can look back now and realize that that was the moment, that was a defining moment for me when I became a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? And there's a lot of things that come with being a people pleaser, for me at least. <laughs> and for the next 40 years, I lived those without even realizing that that's what I was doing. You know, I was, uh, I took things personally. I was a control freak. I needed people to recognize the work I was doing to please them. You know, I'd be involved in community events because number one, I liked being, and my parents were always involved in community events. I liked it, but I also liked the accolades that came with it. Wow, Martin, you did such a great job. You know, things like that. And I had a very short temper. And if you think about it, it all makes sense. As of course. A user, when things aren't going your way, you take it personally. As mm -hmm. a control freak, you want to make sure that everything's going exactly as you want so that you can please everybody. Right. Like the accolades, as I said. And when it doesn't, you lose it. And that was my default tendency for the first 40 years, 50 from, from when I was 10 
told I was about 45 or 50. And it took some other things to happen in my life to recognize that I was a people pleaser. And that over the years, whenever I would do those things and I would try to please people, I would rationalize that what I was doing was for the greater good. But what I've come to learn now, and it's something I've trademarked, is the word rationalize. Okay. Really two words. Rational lies. Lies. Wow. That's a, that's a lot to take in, right? That's it's yeah. And it, that's incredible. Incredible. You know, it's interesting, the stories that we tell ourselves and while we both had very tragic losses, losing a brother for me, my story, because the day that I found out that my brother died, I was, it was two weeks before my 13th birthday. And I was very happy for one of the first times, like it was just, I had girlfriends, I was with one of my girlfriends and we were living on the water and I'm running up the hundred stairs that went from the river dock to my house. And I was so happy only to learn that my brother died. And the story that I told myself was that I can't allow myself to be happy because if I do, then something horrible is going to happen. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it's interesting how we both, you know, you tell a story and it becomes yeah. the truth to you for yeah. everything. And, you know, I know your story. We talked about it, that you were a junkie and now you're a happiness junkie. Yeah, right? that's right. I know. I love that you put that together for me. Thank you for that reminder that, yeah, I just turned one form of being a junkie into another junkie. No, because most people who have, who, who are addicted to things, just to go addicted from one thing to another, to another, because they're missing something and you grasped onto something that you love and turned it into something that you're not missing anymore, but you, you live it in every which way possible. So you just became a positive junkie of happiness. Hey, you know what? Given the choice, I'll take happiness junkie any day. Hello. <laughs> Same, here. Same here. Yeah. And look, I, I call myself a recovering people pleaser now. Yeah. Because you know what? Yeah. There are times I might slip. And do it because, and then when I realize it, I don't freak out anymore. I don't do anything, but that's part of my story as well. So I was always a people pleaser. When I got married, I was trying to please my parents. I was trying to please my wife, spinning all these plates. And like I said, I rationalized everything. And, you know, I, I, I came up with a card deck recently called the Warrior to Warrior card deck. Love it. Got my principles. Thank you. And one of them is rationalized. And I wrote, whenever you think you may be doing something that goes against your values, you will rationalize all the reasons why it's okay. Yep. What you're really doing is lying to yourself that it's rational to think that. They're nothing more than rational lies. That is so brilliant. I hope the audience is listening to that because we all do it. You know, okay, well, I'm not going to work out today because da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Exactly. And all you're doing is you're lying to yourself. Yeah, I love exactly. it. And that's my that's my simple example when I talk to people about the word rationalize. And you know, you know when you start exercising 10 minutes into you're like, why wasn't I going to exercise? This is great. Exactly. But at that moment, you're telling yourself, so now that now that your audience has become aware of it and they wake up tomorrow morning, they go, I don't feel like exercising. Why don't you then do the next step and say to yourself, is this a rational lie? Yeah. Am I rationalizing why I shouldn't exercise? Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So what was, so you had the turning point at the age of 10 
where you became a people pleaser. What was the turning point for you where you came up with this, you know, life code? Yeah. So I'd love to say that I, one day I became enlightened, but it, of course, with many, many people, it comes at your lowest points in your life that these things become that much more aware to you, that much more glaringly obvious. Right. And for me, that happened in 2008. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you and I are old enough to remember 15 years ago what happened with the financial oh, yeah. in 2008. You know, I was recently re- listening to someone, and they go, Soon the people that are coming up, the, the guys that are in their 20s have no idea what we're talking about. I know. <laughs> but they're getting their own now with, the, with what's going on with the economy. But anyway, in 2008, my wife and I were working on a project for five years to build a multi-million dollar health club and tennis center down by the Jersey Shore. Mm-hmm. We go, you know, I lived by the Jersey Shore for 20 years when I was growing up. I'd go to the shore in the summertime after I got divorced and move back to New York, which is part of my story, I'll tell you in a minute. I still go to the shore in the summertime. Mm -hmm. So here I am, it's 2008, and now we put five years into getting all the approvals and everything that you need to do to go forward with a tennis court and health center. And the funny thing is, I don't even play tennis. I'm not (laughs) an athlete. But my wife said, I can't find anywhere to play tennis. Maybe we should do that. (laughs) So the people please remember me like, okay. I, I don't play any sports whatsoever. I love watching them. So I guess you could call me an athletic supporter. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so now we finally get all the approvals. And if it happened in 2006 and 2007, I would walk into the bank and they're like, here you go. You know, they were giving out mortgages like they were, like you were going to Costco and getting samples. Yeah. You know, here you go. Oh, you, you just refinanced two years ago for 500. Well, we'll give you 750 now. I know. It was crazy. Yeah. So I went to the bank. I'm like, okay, I'm 3 million plus into this. Let's go. Let's start building this $15 million project. And they're like, sorry, it's not happening. What are you talking about? You Last year, you said when you're ready to come back. Well, things are slowing down. That was August. In September, Bernie Madoff, subprime loans. It fell like a house of cards. Yeah. And you know where I was? I was on the bottom of the cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And overnight, I was broke. Lost mm-hmm. everything. Stopped paying my mortgage. Stopped paying my car payments. And like most of the people in New Jersey, they got foreclosed on. I was foreclosed on. Luckily, New Jersey had so many foreclosures that it took them years before they took the house away. Wow. But they still took it away. Yeah. And a few months after I stopped paying my car payments, something that never happened to me before, my son wakes me up. He says, dad, your car is being towed. <laughs> it was being repossessed. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, geez. well, what about the stuff inside? Too late. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> Goodbye, BMW. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I just remembered what the car was. But here we are. So things were not good. It took me about a year to pick myself off the floor. And I was literally in situational depression. Yeah. It wasn't a, and that's part of my story too. I started, I went to therapists. I went to, I was taking medication. I was taking you well, butrin. And then I realized I didn't need that stuff because yeah. it was situational. Right. So now I said, okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I've been a businessman for almost 50 years. What do I want to do now? And I realized I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't love it. What I love doing is being involved in the community events 
And people would come in and say, I don't know how much time I can give. Here's a couple of hours. I don't know what I could do. And I would show them their potential. So I realized I was a life coach yeah. without being a life coach. Yeah. yeah. And, but now here I come. It's about two months before coaching school was going to start. My 24th wedding anniversary. And my wife turns to me and she says, I'm done. I want a divorce. Wow. I'm like, wow, there's 364 other days you could have picked. I didn't say that. I think <laughs> now I look back and could have said that, you know, I didn't get her anything like that. But looking at it, that was probably the best gift other than our four children. And now we have eight girl, grandchildren that she could have ever given me. Yeah. You know, other, after my four children, you know, because it was the kick in the pants I needed that I needed to figure out what's going on. In the beginning, as a people pleaser, I took all the blame. It was all my fault that the commu that the marriage fault fell, fell mm -hmm. apart. We were together 25 years at the end of the day. Right. We both were responsible. Mm -hmm. We were both victims. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So I takes I two. You know the feeling. Yeah. There's always you always have a part in every situation. Yep. So I decided I'm still going to go through with life coaching. I think God was uh, kind of uh, nudging me to tell me. Oh, you want to go to life coaching school? Man, God, man plans, God laughs. Go for yourself and then figure out what you're going to do. Yeah. So I went, and before I went, they gave us a syllabus, and they said, read a couple of these books. And one of them was The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Mm -hmm. You know that book? I do. And for me, the second agreement just got me. That's don't take anything personal. Yeah. And it was like he told me a secret that everybody had been telling me my whole life. But until that moment, I wasn't ready to hear. And when I read it, I was like, wait a minute. I don't have to be responsible for everybody else. I don't have to have the world on my shoulders. I don't have to worry if somebody says, you're an idiot and take it personally. So I was like, oh, okay. And that started my journey. And going to life coach training, they said to me, you don't have to be who you think you have to be. Right. You can be whoever you want to be, as long as you're willing to recognize what's working and more importantly, what's not working. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started to realize I was a people pleaser. I had a short temper and all the other things. Yeah. Wow. Great story. Yeah. It, um, I think we all, most people were affected during that time. And um, I'm so happy that you went forward with it and yeah yeah crazy mm. but yeah you you know the thing is is like when you can recognize and I know I, we talked about this before too when you recognize that all these things and I you know it's so funny I I think I say this every single podcast interview because it, it's always so relevant and I, and I and I also want my audience to keep hearing it right but when you recognize that things happen for you and not to you, that's when you're able to move through and, and get to the other side and, right. and become right. that person that you want to be. Yeah, believe me, at that moment when she asked me for the divorce, I go, why is everything happening to me? And now I realize that not only does everything happen for me, it happens through me. That's right. right. Now, were you the one that said you're a thriver, not a survivor? I'm not, but I like that. <laughs> I've kept, I, you know, people say things and I need to, because I want to give people credit where credit is due. And I just talked to so many people, but I love, I love that, you know, you're not a cancer survivor, you're a cancer thriver or right. whatever the case may be. Right. And, you know, I've read some unbelievable books on subjects like this. For example, I don't know if you've read Dr. Edith Egger, The Choice. No. 
So she wrote a, wrote a book of going through the Holocaust. Oh, and wow. She's alive. She's in her mid-90s. Uh, and she talks about she was going down the, she was in Auschwitz, and she was going through the line in front of Mengele, the doctor of death. Oh, and wow. she decided she was a dancer, so she would dance in front of him and do a high kick. And it saved her life. But the book is really about how she was a victim, but she didn't allow what happened to victimize her. Right. She recognizes that she was a victim. And 20 years later, she was invited to go to the castle where Himmel and all these other guys would live it up. And she was nervous to go. And then she realized, wait a minute, I beat them. I can go to that castle because they're dead and I'm not. Wow. Well, I'll have to look into that because there's the, the stories, especially the ones about the Holocaust, are just so incredible. The the people that survived that, yeah, um, yeah, it's just unbelievable. Wow, Martin, this has been such a great conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience, and how can people find you as well? Yeah, so let me tell them about um, how the life code came about. Yes. Okay. So here I am. I, as soon as I got out of coaching, I was a divorce recovery coach. And I was okay. doing that for a few years, and I was working a dead-end job, which was tough to get jobs, especially for people that were in their 50s, because they were, yeah. everybody was just coming back. And a guy got me a job. I was working at 7 to 7, at least 7 a.m., come home 7 p.m., and I got to the heaviest ever was in my life. And one day I looked at the mirror. I said, are you just going to keep on getting heavy and blame it on, on everybody else? I'm coaching, but I'm not being coached. And, and that's one thing I want to tell everybody. Don't say I can't afford to be coached. You could figure it out. Take the word I can't out of anything that you do. Yeah. But I lost 65 pounds in nine, nine months because I started exercising. I started eating better. I started reading better. I started getting coached. I found ways to exercise early in the morning with, with videos. I got it done. But what happened was I went from self-conscious to self-aware, which is another card in my deck. But one of the things I was doing was I'm ADHD, so I was I was meditating. Could you imagine an ADHD guy meditating? Well, that's me because I meditate every day, and I'm I'm not I've never been officially diagnosed as ADHD, but I know I've got some attention deficit. I, think I was in my fifties finally. Yeah, <laughs> if, they only, if I only knew it when I was fifteen. But you know. right. so here I am trying to focus for ten minutes and say, how do people stop their brain from thinking over ten minutes? I don't get it. But one of these times I had this download of information that I was loving my life. And I wrote for two hours afterwards. And out of that came the acronym life, live incredibly full every day. Yeah. Love it. And that's how I live my life. As I told you earlier, I started dating a couple of years later, I met a woman. And when I go on these dates, I would ask them questions about their values. Mm. Because I would realize I don't want to have the same relationship I had the first time. I didn't know my values. I learned that through going through coaching and I definitely didn't know her values and we were in a codependent relationship and I was never going to do that again. Yeah. And I dated this woman and all of a sudden she's checking off all the boxes. A month later, I told her, I got to tell you something and you don't have to say anything to me, but I'm falling in love with you because I love who you are and I love that you see me exactly as I am yeah. and not trying to change me. Yeah. And we've been married for about five years now. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But during COVID, that's where the warrior came in. Okay. Everybody's worrying about everything. You know, right. we started in March and they go, oh, three weeks will be good. And everything will be good. <laughs> right? Looking back now, only if it was only three weeks. 
I would get out every day. I'd put my mask on in the beginning. I'd put my gloves on. I'd go right. to the supermarket and I'd do my six to 10 feet distancing and all that. Now it comes to May and the world is still shut down. And I live in New York. I live in Brooklyn, which is right outside of Manhattan. I told Sarita, my wife, let's take your kids, her kids. I'm living with her kids now. We're married. Let's go to the city. And if you've ever driven in New York City, it's a little difficult to get two blocks without hitting a, a red light. Yes. Imagine being able to drive straight down Fifth Avenue and not missing one traffic light. Wow. No, I can't imagine that. There's nobody <laughs> out. I turned to Sarita. I said, I don't understand it. Where is everybody? You can wear gloves. You can put masks on. You can walk six feet apart. Go to Central Park. People weren't doing that. Yeah. So I realized that everybody was worried. And I also realized that over the last 10, 12 years, I had learned to stop worrying. And that's where I went from being a worrier to a warrior. To a warrior. So why warrior. do I use the cards? Because my Brooklyn accent screws up warrior to warrior. <laughs> and that's where the warrior's life code came from. And now I have my cards, the warrior to warrior cards. And my book is coming out very soon. Also warrior to warrior is my code. And you ask how people can find me? How about being made it very simple? Connectwithmartin.com. Nice. Go there. Love you it. can buy the cards. You can get free gifts. You got a bunch of stuff there. Fantastic. And I'll make sure all of that is in the show notes. I love everything you're doing, Martin. And this has been so enjoyable. You are such a delightful person. I can't wait to meet you someday. I'm sure we'll end up at some event or something. And we're going to give each other big, gigantic hugs. Absolutely. I'm a hugger. Me too. Me too. <laughs> All right, Martin. Thank you so much. And thank you for the listeners. Really thank appreciate you. everyone. Thank you. I certainly hope that you enjoyed today's interview. Thank you so much for joining me. And as always, I hope that you and your family are healthy and safe and that your lives are filled with peace, joy, and happiness. Take care, everyone.